Uh, we've been in a series on the, uh, on the first three chapters, looking at the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. So that is where I invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Revelation as we continue in our study of this rich unveiling by Christ and about Christ uh, and his last words to uh, the church. Uh, last week, we wrapped up uh, chapter one. This morning, we embark upon this uh, really a thrilling exploration of the actual letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. But before we jump in, let me, let me just make a few uh, quick comments about uh, what the Apostle John was commissioned to write. Uh, you'll notice there in Revelation chapter 1, uh, verse 19, Jesus Christ Uh, The risen and reigning Lord commands John, he says, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Uh, I've already mentioned in in a previous message how I believe this verse really scopes out the book for us and divides the the apocalypse into three uh, main sections, one past, one present, and one future. So you have the, what he refers to here is the things which you have seen, uh, referring to the vision of the once crucified but now glorified Lord Jesus. That's chapter 1. So that is that sort of that past dynamic, that this, this initial vision of Christ which prepares you for what is to come. And then you have what he refers to here is the things which are. Uh, and that, I believe, is referring to the actual, these, these royal letters from the risen Christ to the seven churches of Asia Minor. That's chapters 2 and 3. So the seven churches, which are a sampling, really, of the whole body of Christ. Uh, these, these are letters to the church worldwide, if you will, in John's day and in succeeding ages. And then you have the things which will take place afterwards, referring to the events of the end times and the future prophecy and prediction concerning Christ appearing and victory and the judgment of the wicked. But I just want to reiterate that as important as that prophetic section is, again, I think people get, get excited about prophecy and they want to get in, into the book and get into those, those later chapters, but just I think it's important to remind ourselves that as important as that, that prophecy section is, that we, we need not neglect the things which have been and the things which are. As I said the very first week of this series, prophecy is not a narcotic to numb us to the pain of life. It is a steroid to stimulate holy and hopeful living. As Peter said, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. In other words, before God will judge the unsaved, He will discipline the saved. Before he proceeds to judge the world, he will discipline those whom he loves. He will purge his church and make her ready as his bride. And that is why these letters really constitute a call for the church to repent. And what we will learn in the coming weeks is that five out of seven of of these churches in Asia needed renewal and Revival. There was lovelessness, as we'll see this morning, 
at Ephesus. There was worldliness at Pergamum. There was truthlessness at Thyatira. There was emptiness at Sardis. And there was fullness at Laodicea, but not the good kind of fullness. That, that particular church was full of pride and arrogance uh, that developed into a, a self-sufficiency uh, in, in the church. So it's not just about longing for the second coming. It is equally about living for the second coming. And along with Christ's call to repentance, he sort of stokes that thought with the prospect of his soon return and the attendant rewards that come with it. When he calls the believers in Asia to repent, he challenges them with the life that is to come and the rewards that await those who are faithful and obedient to him. And he tells them to renew their obedience, renew their dedication in light of his soon and imminent return. That is to say, they need to discipline themselves so that Christ doesn't have to discipline them. Because Christ will do that. Christ will discipline his church before he judges the world. Another thing that I think we need to recognize as we sort of get into chapters 2 and 3 is that there is a solidarity to these letters. In other words, these letters, although addressed to particular churches, are also addressed to the church at large. For example, every letter begins with, you'll notice, the conjunction, the word and. And so these, these letters, they're, they're joined and they're bound together in one book. They belong to the book of Revelation. And the churches read about the other churches. You'll see, you'll see this You'll see that, and then you'll also see this solidarity in the, by the fact that, that at the end of these letters, we'll find this refrain that says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So there is, there's really this appeal beyond the immediate recipients. That is to say, while each church is a whole church, each church is not the whole church. And you'll see this in the Bible. You'll see this sort of this independence recognized, but then you'll also find this this interdependence between believers and between even churches and congregations because we need to learn to lean on each other. We need to learn from each other. We need need not stand as as churches in isolation from one another. So on the one hand, we, we believe in the autonomy of the local church, but not ever to the exclusion of loving inter-church fellowship. We understand that every church is enriched by the support and the resources of other churches and Christians. So when we think about Faith Community Church, we have to keep this in mind, that we are only one little chapter of the story. We are only one part of the family. Uh, that there is a, there's a certain community or, or what the old theologians used to call the communion of the saints. We belong together because we belong in unity with Christ. We, we belong, you might say, to a sort of cosmic family of believers beyond ourselves, which means that what happens in one congregation should gain the interest of another congregation. That what was going on in, in Sardis was important to those who were in Laodicea. 
And, and what was going on in Philadelphia was important to those in Ephesus. And what Christ expects in one church, He expects in others. That is why, although these churches are different in some ways, uh, there should be at the core this certain familiarity. Uh, There should be certain things that mark all churches that name the name of Christ. And in the coming weeks, we'll be discovering what some of those things are, those qualities that we ought to possess as a church. And we'll also see particular problems. We'll see uh, particular areas of, of disobedience as well. So as we go through these seven letters one at a time, we'll see reflections of ourselves uh, in these churches. And we'll need, to, we'll need to classify ourselves. We'll need to ask uh, questions of ourselves. Uh, am I falling out of love with the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I not guarding and watching my doctrine and my life? Am I, am I impacting the world or is the world impacting me? Do I have a heart for the lost? Am I so full of myself that there's no room for God? And so forth. And no doubt, we'll need to repent. In fact, there might be a need for us to repent of our repentance if it's been shallow and, and not real. Now, now, as we mentioned already, these, these letters were written to seven real churches, uh, seven real local fellowships in seven real cities. These are historical churches, and the Lord is writing a letter that applies to that period of time and that particular church. But these are also, you might call them perennial churches, That is to say, each of them is a little bit different from the others, but they represent the types of churches that are, or that perennially exist throughout all of church history, all throughout the church age, the kinds of churches that that continually reoccur. Most of them, as we'll see, have some evil. Uh, They have some, some error mixed with the good. And so we begin today with the letter to the Ephesian church. The first of the seven letters, which is addressed before the others, not only because it was, as we mentioned before, the first sort of the first stop on the postal route, but also because it was the most prominent of the seven churches. So let me read for us. This is Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And again, I'm reading from the New American Standard. Verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love." Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in 
the paradise of God. Now, I assume that many of you are well aware of that singular statement in verse 4, where Jesus says, I have this against you that you have left your first love, not necessarily uh, in total, but, but in part, or you might say at least enough that they were characterized that way. But before we, we really go any further, we need to understand this fundamental issue, and that is this matter of the Christian loving the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just mention a few passages here. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. John chapter 8, verse, verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. John chapter 14, verse 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So you take these passages, and and there are, are many others, but you put them all together, and you could summarize the Christian's relationship with God this way. God loves us, we love him, and because we love him, we obey him. So to be very clear at the very outset, those who are Christians love the Lord Jesus. They love the Lord Jesus. In fact, Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 22, that if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. He is to be accursed. So love for Jesus is present in all Christians. Now, that being said, it is also true that not all Christians love Christ as they ought, right? Their love for Him is it's subject to fluctuation. Uh, it is subject to, to varying degrees of intensity. And in this particular case, that is what is going on with this specific fellowship, this specific church. It was a, really a waning intensity of their love for Christ. Now let's work our way through this first letter. And as we do, I want to break this down. We're going to move through these fairly rapidly, but we want to break this passage down into nine, nine parts. I think it will just help us to, to stay on track. And we'll notice in the coming weeks that, um, the, that the structure of these letters is, is very similar. It's, they're, not, they're not identical, and we'll point out the differences as we go. But let me just do this for us today. These nine parts, of course, verse 1 starts out with this line, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. And so this is directed to uh, the messenger of each particular church. And then we have our first point, which is the identification of the author. The identification of the author. So the question is, who is the author of this correspondence? Well, it's not really... Uh, John, John is, is writing this, but it's not, he's not really the author. It is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. 
Now, we know from our study of chapter 1 that this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is residing among his churches. He is the one who is presiding over his churches. He, he, is, he is the one controlling the leadership of those churches. He is the one controlling and caring for the flock itself and the people within those congregations. Uh, described as sort of moving among them at close range and ministering to them. So this is how Christ is identified to the church. The, the once crucified but now risen Christ who is assessing and who is scrutinizing. He is seeing and evaluating every heart. He is evaluating every conversation, every activity. He sees, he hears, and he watches. And the content of this letter is what he has to say to them. But at the very outset, he just wants them to know he is the one who knows, right? So whatever he's about to say to them, he, he is fully aware of this. There's no way they can conceal their true spiritual condition from their Lord. And so that is the identification of the author. And then, then we move on and really look, want to talk a little bit about what we know about the location of this particular church. In this case, it's the city of, of Ephesus. Ephesus was nearer to the island of Patmos than the other six cities, uh, but it was really more than that. It had a distinction of its own as the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. Its citizens like to refer to it as the metropolis of Asia. And it was by far the greatest city in the region. It was a, it was a major league city of that, of that particular day for several reasons. Location, location, location. So geographically, it had this, this great harbor. Uh, Ephesus was constructed uh, basically on a river bend that was eventually dredged into a full harbor uh, near the mouth of the Caister River on the western coast of Asia Minor. Uh, at that time, it was about three miles from the Aegean Sea. Uh, because of this uh, man-made harbor structure and, and the flow of the river, there was this backwash flow that caused the harbor to frequently silt up. But when cleared, Ephesus was in a location that justified a great seaport. Moreover, the city sat at the convergence of four uh, major land routes. And so you had access to this city. Many things would come into the port and then would be distributed throughout, throughout this particular province through this location. The population of this city exceeded uh, it, it was at least 250,000 people, uh, may have even swelled to 500,000 inhabitants during the first century, making it the fourth largest of its day behind Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. So e Ephesus was an economic stronghold. Uh, it, it became known as the marketplace of Asia or the gateway to Asia. One Roman, Roman writer called it uh, luminasia, the, the light of Asia. So geographically, it was positioned well. Uh, politically, it was given by Rome the right to self-governing because of its loyalty to the empire. That is to say, it was what they would call a free city. So there, were no, there was no Roman garrison. There were no Roman troops that were stationed there. There was no oppressive a Roman shadow sort of that, that, that hung over them. 
and hung over this particular city. Consequently, it was, it was a free-thinking place. And so there was a lot of liberty there for the exchange of various ideas. And, and really, that became a melting pot for a lot of uh, different ideas. Uh, which brings up this issue of their culture. They had great games. Great games were conducted there. The people were very culturally advanced. You had the Ephesian Games, which rivaled the Olympic Games. You had a, a massive a theater that as you would come from the port down the main road into the city, you would, the first thing that you would come upon would be this massive, uh, this massive theater. Uh, Ephesus had all the amenities of a cosmopolitan city. They had sports, they had the arts, they had drama and pageantry. Steve, Steve Lawson put it this way. He said, this was no hick town. Right? I mean, this was the center of, of all of the action that was going on in Asia Minor. And so culturally advanced, religiously, uh, Ephesus was the center of the worship of Artemis. Artemis being the Greek name, uh, Diana being the Roman name. And so the temple of Diana was there in Ephesus. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Tremendous size, 140 uh, yards long, 85 yards wide, 127 Persian marble columns, each about 60 feet high and embellished with gold and jewels. Uh, and this particular temple served several functions. It was, of course, it was, it was a temple. Uh, it was used for, for the worship of Diana, but it was also a museum with collections from all over the world. It was a bank uh, housing the treasures of the wealthy in the inner shrine. It was a sanctuary for criminals where they would find political asylum from the long arm of the Roman law. And so people that were fleeing the law would come there, would actually seek refuge at the temple itself. And it was a place of big business where uh, little idols and trinkets were sold. Now, what about the worship of Diana herself? Well, Diana was the twin sister in, in mythology, the twin sister of Apollo and the daughter of Zeus. But the Ephesus Diana was not quite the same figure as was worshipped in Greece. Uh, the, the Greek Artemis was, was really described as a, the goddess of the hunt. But the uh, Ephesus Diana was the goddess of fertility and was often pictured as draped with eggs or multiple paps, symbols of fertility from her waist to her shoulders. But this was not some like beautiful goddess, right? This is not something that you might assume resembles a, mo- a modern day uh, actress or celebrity or, or model. In fact, the very idol of Diana was a strange beast who was supposed to nurse people and give them spiritual life. In fact, the worship of Diana is just, it's difficult, it's difficult to describe. It's difficult, I think, for us to even get our minds around. It was so so full of chaos, so full of, of confusion and corruption. There were numerous eunuchs who had been castrated for the purpose of serving Diana. There were literally thousands of priestesses who were nothing but prostitutes who believed that, uh, that in sexual orgies they could lift the worshiper up into the presence of deities. So there was shameless sexual mutilation, frenzied worship happening, prostitution, festivals and music with dancers and singers, criminals in the middle of all of that, 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 that sexual worship. You had criminals that were seeking asylum in the temple. You had banking and business taking place. So, I mean, this was, this was a madhouse. 
You had, you had things being exchanged, things being sold, things being bought, criminals of, of every stripe trying to find refuge in this place, and then you had all of this, 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 um, this pagan worship going on. So you had this, what you might say is a booming city with this pagan worship taking place, and right in the middle of all of this hysteria and chaos... You have a church. You have a church. A local assembly of believers who were in the world, but not of the world. Men and women who had turned to God from idol worship. Men and women whose lives were so radically changed that it literally affected the worship of Diana and led to riots and persecution. And that takes us sort of to the history of this church. The history of the church that Paul or that uh, that uh, Jesus is writing to and that John is addressing here, uh, the the founding of it, and we we know a lot about this from the scriptures. Uh, we we know from the, from the scriptures that this particular church had a uniquely rich heritage. Uh, the apostle Paul first stopped briefly in Ephesus near the end of his second missionary journey. So he had come from Corinth with Aquila and his wife Priscilla on his way to Antioch. And he ended up leaving Aquila and Priscilla there in Ephesus, according to Acts chapter 18, verse 19, to do just some, you might call it preliminary foundation work. Of course, Paul's desire was to return to Ephesus at some point in the future. But before he was able to do that, there was another influential person that showed up. And this was the the powerful Old Testament preacher, Apollos, who came there from Alexandria. And so Apollos ministered. Of course, we we learn how how he was greatly helped by Aquila and Priscilla. And then he moved on to Corinth to further the work in that city. And then on his third missionary journey, Paul returned to Ephesus, where he began his direct work in the building of this church. And he remained there uh, somewhere between two and a half years. And three years, according to Acts chapter 20, verse 31. He was doing a number of things. He was preaching publicly. He was teaching the whole counsel of God. He was visiting with people privately in their homes. And he's doing all of that before moving on to work his way back to Corinth. And then we have Paul's return trip from Corinth, where he stops in Miletus on his way to Jerusalem. Now, Miletus was about... 35 miles south-southwest of Ephesus. But Paul, Paul goes to Miletus and he calls for the elders of the church in Ephesus to come to him, which they did. And Paul challenged them regarding their responsibilities as spiritual leaders. And all of that is recorded for us in Acts chapter 20. We also know that Timothy, Paul's protege, served as pastor of the Ephesian church. Uh, uh, Onesiphorus as well as Tychicus, based on 2 Timothy. uh, These are two of Paul's fellow laborers. They also, faithful men, also served that church. And then on top of all of that, (laughs) on top of all of that, according to the testimony of the early church, the apostle John spent the last decades of his life in Ephesus and was likely the leading elder in the church when he was arrested and exiled by the emperor Domitian. All that to say, they had some powerful influences in this church. They had some very powerful influences, some very capable, 
leaders, teachers. Uh, They were not short-handed when it came to good teachers, and they also were not lacking in good resources. Either directly or indirectly, they had been the recipients of eight New Testament books. The Gospel of John, Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and 1st Corinthians, which Paul wrote while he was in Ephesus. Not to mention that there were some pretty dramatic things that happened in those early days of the Ephesian church. Extraordinary miracles. People renouncing their occultic practices. So much so that it was affecting the economy. With a huge drop in sales of silver models of Diana's temple and handmade idols. You have new converts uh, in in one, one case, burning books of sorcery and magical spells. In the currency of our day, somewhere in the range of seven and a half million dollars worth of books. Among Jews and Greeks in that city, Acts chapter 19 verse 17 says, that fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Verse 20 of that chapter says that the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. You might say this church was born in a great revival. A remarkable time. A remarkable start and and beginning and foundation. But now 35 years or so since Paul wrote the Ephesian letter... And we have another epistle or another letter, not from Paul, but from the Lord Jesus himself. And it's very concerning, very concerning. Now, before we get to the concern that Christ had, let's consider first the commendation from Christ, the commendation from Christ. And this really is is the pattern that Christ will start out by giving a a commendation to the church before he... Uh, brings his, his criticism and his rebuke. And so he begins this in verse 2 by saying simply, I know your deeds, which again is, is, is a general, but again a very important statement because again, Christ is affirming to them in more than one way that he knows the situation, he knows the details, he knows the attitudes, he knows the motivations of the heart, all of that. Again, you'll recall back in chapter 1 verse 14 it said of Christ that his eyes were like a flame of fire. So nothing escapes his attention, nothing escapes his holy intelligence and knowledge. He fully understands the kind and the quality of their work. And he mentions several things. Uh, Notice there in verse 2, he says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. So Christ brings up several things here in the way of of commendation. First of all, he mentions their toil, their toil. The term is kapos, which refers to labor that involves exhausting effort and sweat. So so simply put, the the Ephesians were toilers, all right? They, They weren't the kind of Christians who wanted to sit on the sidelines and let everyone else do the work. They wanted to be involved. They wanted to participate. They didn't want to be entertained. They wanted to be active and not passive. So they were busy toiling for Christ, teaching God's Word, sharing 
the gospel, planting seeds, helping people in need, serving one another in the family of God, being diligent and conscientious, every member doing something for Christ. So he mentions their toil, and then he commends them for their perseverance. Their perseverance. This is a, this is a word that describes their steadfastness for the sake of the truth, especially in the face of opposition. Their ability to endure hardship and, and to graciously uh, live with the difficulties and the limitations and, and being misunderstood or under, underappreciated or unappreciated. No doubt these believers knew what it was like to be hated. They knew what it was like to be snubbed in public or to be maligned or to be socially ostracized. Some likely found business hard, losing customers. Others found shopping to be a problem when unbelievers refused to sell to them. Bravely bearing the trials and afflictions of life. Waiting patiently for the fulfillment of their Christian hope. They remained faithful. They hung on during the dry and the challenging seasons of life and ministry. Their perseverance. And then Christ mentions their intolerance. Their intolerance, which again would not be politically correct, but uh, Christ is commending them for this. But let's find out what he means by that. Christ says to them, I know that you cannot tolerate evil men. The word here is to, means to bear or to to pick up or to carry, or even in some cases to support. But the word tolerate seems, seems to best capture the meaning here. Now, if you go to other places in the New Testament, you find this term in other New Testament passages. For instance, Romans chapter 15, verse 1 says, Now we who are strong ought to bear, ought to, if you will, tolerate the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Galatians chapter 6, Paul wrote this to that church in verse 2 and said that we're to bear one another's, there's our term, bear one another's or support one another's or tolerate one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So we are to bear those things. We are to tolerate those things, but not evil men, not morally bad men. And, and that, that's what these believers were doing. These believers were... They, they, they were loving the truth. They were loving one another and bearing one another's burdens, but they were not tolerating those characterized by evil and having that kind of influence on the church. You remember the Apostle Paul warned the Ephesian church about this when he said to the elders of that church in Acts 20, verse 28, he says, "...be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers." to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. For three years, Paul warned and admonished them with tears concerning this threat, the threat of evil and perverse men twisting the Scriptures and seducing God's people. And eventually, or evidently, the leaders of the church and the church itself took Paul's warning and applied it. And 40 years later, Christ says to the Ephesian church, you are still hanging in there. 
unwilling to tolerate wicked and corrupt men. Next, Christ mentions their discernment, their spiritual discernment, which manifested itself in their diligence to put those to the test that claimed to be apostles. John would write this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So this is what characterized the Ephesian church. They, they knew sound doctrine, and they knew how to evaluate anyone who said that they were a teacher or an apostle. And then they could recognize the marks of a true leader and the marks of a false one. Surely they got all kinds of, of teachers that came through, all kinds of, of apostles, all kinds of, of, of emissaries, uh, ambassadors of, of, of legalism and ambassadors of libertinism and ritualism and mysticism, all those things that came against the early church, ambassadors for integrationism and syncretism. But this church learned to size these individuals up. They had their standard of sound doctrine, and they rightly evaluated them, only approving of those who passed the test. So this was the Ephesian church, a citadel of orthodoxy, theological correctness, which is so critical to the stability and the strength and longevity of of a church. And then Jesus alludes to their motive. Notice verse 3. He says, "...and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake." And have not grown weary. Which is similar to what he's just said, but here he mentions their reason for remaining steadfast and for enduring, for bearing up under the difficult task of dealing with false doctrine and false teachers, for working hard and for serving and not throwing in the towel. And he says that they did it for his name's sake. They did it for him. This is how they stayed in the spiritual marathon. In spite of all that the church faced, they remained faithful to the word, faithful to the work, and faithful to the standard. And they did it, according to Christ's own assessment, they did it for His glory. They did that for His namesake, for His reputation. And then lastly, Christ commends them for, again, interesting, not politically correct, but He commends them for their hatred. Their hatred. Notice verse 6. Down in verse 6, he says, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, who were the Nicolaitans? I mean, what, what were their deeds and what were they all about? Well, we'll come to this again in a couple of weeks when we look at the letter to the church at Pergamum, specifically down in verses 14 and 15 of this same chapter. But for now, just let me summarize this, this for us. The, the Nicolaitans were those who came into the church and attempted to lead the church into immorality and uncleanness and loose living by replacing Christian liberty with license and teaching a form of hyper-grace in order to work out a compromise with paganism. But here's the thing. The Ephesian church not only spotted this false teaching, but they despised it. They hated it. Strong words for a church. But it wasn't just a church, right? Jesus himself said that he hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. 
Why? Why did he hate him? Why did he hate that? And why, why would the church need to do such a thing? Well, because that kind of teaching leads people in a direction that is the polar opposite of what Christ intends for his followers. Titus chapter 2, verse 14 says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. The teaching of the Nicolaitans was having the opposite effect on the sheep. And the Ephesian church had stood their ground all these years, not compromising, maintaining their hatred for the darkness, remaining true to this call, not being so naive or foolish to suppose that Christian charity can tolerate false teachers or false teaching. And Christ now commends them for it. So here's the takeaway. This was a great church. (laughs) This was a great church. They had a powerful beginning. They, They had fantastic leaders and teachers. They had a lot going for them. Their, their toil, their service, their outward activity of labor, their inward disposition of perseverance, their to- intolerance, putting church discipline into practice, their discernment, not being victimized by false teachers, their motive to doing this for God's glory, their hatred of any perversion of the true gospel. So in many, many ways, this church was a model church. But something was bad wrong. Something was bad wrong. Which brings us to the criticism from Christ. The criticism from Christ. Verse 4, he says, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now you say, wait a minute. Doesn't Romans 8.31 say that God is for us? Paul writes there in Romans 8, he says, What then shall we say to these things if God is for us who is against us? And the way that he says that, asks that question, it's, it's, it's sort of like it's the, the obvious answer is, and God is, yes, God is for you, right? It's implied that God is for you. And because of that, who can be against us? So that is true. But in Revelation chapter 2, Christ is emphasizing his commitment to deal with the sin of his people. So this has more to do with the church's practice and their sanctification than it does their justification or their position. And what is it that Christ has against them? He says, they have left their first love. Wow. (laughs) That must have been an absolute shock for, for the people when they heard those words. Uh, it, it's, like, it's like a scene from a TV show I was watching, watching recently where the wife, the wife in this TV show presents, she presents her husband who has been a, a characteristically a, 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 a quick-tempered man for years and is, and is buried in his career and has completely ignored his family and his marriage. She presents to him in this this particular episode, she presents him with divorce papers. And then he asks her this question. He says, he looks, he, he pulls out the divorce papers and looks at her and says, but why? And she replies, because you even had to ask. It's like, it's like for some reason, he did not even, even see this coming. Didn't even see it coming. 
And for the Ephesian church who had so many things going right, their labor and their service and their ability to point out error and all of those things, but Christ sees and Christ knows. And he knows that in all of the hype of the activity that they were busy falling out of love with him. Which is why New Testament Christians are told to learn from the example of Israel in the Old Testament and to be instructed. Because Israel made this same terrible mistake. Jeremiah chapter 2 Verse 1 says this, Now the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals, your following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest, and all who ate of it became guilty. Evil came upon them, declares the Lord. So God says, essentially, I remember... I recall the way that it used to be, but, verse 4, hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, what injustice did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me, and walked after emptiness, and became empty? God says, I remember I remember. I remember the time of your love. I remember the time of your betrothal. I remember those early days. It is you who have forgotten those early days and where you came from. And this is similar to what happened, I think, to the church in Ephesus. Doctrinal? Yes. Morally pure? Yes. Zealous? Yes. Hardworking? Solid. But something was missing. John Stott said this, he said, So unimpeachable was their theological correctness, but to hate error, listen to the statement, but to hate error and evil is not the same as to love Christ. Jerry Ragg has referred to this particular church as the church that was truth savvy, but love starved. Things had become mechanical. The love had cooled off. John MacArthur says this. He says, How would you like it, ladies, if your husband came to you sometime and said, I don't love you anymore, but nothing will change? Is that enough? I'll still earn a living. I'll still eat with you, sleep with you, drive with you. I'll still father the children and be your husband. Nothing will change. I just don't love you. Devastating. How would you feel if your wife came to you, men, and said, I don't love you, but nothing will change? In a sense, he says, we couldn't imagine saying that to the Lord. Lord, I don't love you like I once did. That's gone. But I just want you to know that I'll still come. I'll still work. I'll still sing. I'll still give. I'll still even believe the truth. I just don't love you. We wouldn't say that, but the Lord knows if it's true. So 40 years after being marked by love, the church's affection had cooled. They had fallen from the early heights of their devotion to Christ and descended into the plains of mediocrity. So what do you do? I mean, what, what, what do you do if you're, if you're in that church? 
what would Christ have you do if, if that describes you as an individual or if that describes your church? Well, thankfully, we're not left to wonder because we have this, sixthly, this exhortation from Christ. This exhortation from Christ. Verse 5, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first. Three imperatives. Remember, repent, and do. So number one, remember. Remember from where you have fallen, or it's literally, it's, 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 it's a continuous action. Keep on remembering. Go back in your mind and remember how it used to be. Remember what it was like when you first passed from darkness into light. Remember what it was like when that burden of sin was rolled away. Remember back to when you first came to faith in Christ. Can you recall it? Can you recall your fire, your, your fire being on fire for the Lord? Can you, can you remember that time when you had an unquenchable desire to know God's word, when you prayed with passion and fervency, when you had to tell people about Christ and share what God was doing in your life, when, when Christ was so real and God was so alive? Remember. That's the first command. Steve Lawson says this, memory memory is the handmaid of revival. So many things in Scripture are tied to this aspect of us remembering, remembering from where we've come and what God has done. Secondly, he says, repent. Because to leave your first love for God is a sin. And slacking off in your love for Jesus is a sin. So you confess and you ask the Lord to forgive you for that. For growing in your knowledge, but not in your affections. For seeing more of God's kindness, but loving Him less. And you repent. You you change course. You change direction. You get back on track. That that is repentance. Repentance is to to resolutely and completely, completely turn your back on all known sin. The fact is, when you drift away from simple devotion to Christ... Something or someone else replaces your first love. You have a new first love. It is no longer Jesus. It could be your job. It could be a relationship. It could be your family. It could be some possession or some achievement. Anything that you love more than you love Christ is your new first love. And you need to repent of that. And then the third thing he says here is do, or we'll say resume. Do the first deeds that you, or did the, do the deeds that you did at first. Go back to your former state. And don't wait until you fall back in love with Christ again. Just go back to it. Just, just go back to those things. Don't stop working. Don't give up being patient. Don't throw out your orthodoxy. But recapture your love for Christ. Examine your motives. Live with a new singleness of mind. Michael Horton said this, We can lose Christ by distraction as easily as by denial. So it's it's a simple question, really. What did you do when you first got saved? (laughs) What did you do? Did you tell your friends about Him? Did you read your Bible just to learn more about your Savior? Did you pray with childlike trust? Did you pray for others and with others? Did you get involved in everything you could, you could to grow in your faith? Did you reach out to others? Did you take notes on the sermon or Bible study? Did you make it a habit to memorize Scripture? Whatever things you did like that, do them again. Get back to the Word. Get back to fellowship and worship and prayer. 
take small steps toward the light. Remember, repent before God, and resume the things you used to do with a heart that is overwhelmed by the truth that God made you, He chose you, and He saved you. It's serious stuff. How serious? Well, notice the warning to the unrepentant. The warning to the unrepentant. The second half of verse 5, Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. You might be thinking, oh, he's coming to me. Great. Right? I've been waiting for his second coming, but that, that isn't what Christ is referring to here. This is about Christ coming to them in local judgment, a judgment upon that specific church. He says, if you don't repent, then I'm coming to you and you're going to have nothing. I will remove your lampstand out of its place. Now, you remember, the lampstand represents the church. That's chapter 1, verse 20. So, so what is the consequence if they choose to ignore the warning? Well, basically, the church would eventually be gone. Right? I mean, even, even if the preacher kept preaching, even if the people kept singing and the sound system still worked and Bible studies continued and people gave and youth group met and the activities went on, but there would be no power. There would be no reality. Without the love, without love for Christ and one another, it would cease to be a real church and the light would go elsewhere. And then notice what follows briefly, the command to heed, the command to heed, verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is to say, you had better listen up because it is critical that believers actually hear what the Spirit says, that they both hear it and take it to heart to, to carefully hear and decisively heed the message. And then Christ ends with this, the promise to the overcomer, the end of verse 7, to him who overcomes... I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To whom is this promise addressed? It's addressed to him who overcomes. It's a a phrase that that is repeated in every one of the seven letters, and it's simply a reference to true believers. We know that because in 1 John 5, John writes this in verse 4 of that chapter, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So an overcomer is a, is a Christian. It's not a second-level kind of Christian. And then what is this promise? Well, the promise, it's, it's the benefits of Christ's redemption. It's heaven. It's participation in the kingdom of God described in the closing vision of this book. He says, listen, if you are a true believer, God will give you access to the tree of life which doesn't simply imply that you get to heaven because you overcome. Because heaven is, heaven, is not a, heaven is a gift. Heaven is not a reward. But heaven is the lot of those who are saved. And those who are saved overcome. Now, if you would, please stand. Our challenge this morning is, is, very, is very simple. It is for you to be certain that you are a Christian. If you have never repented and trusted in Christ to save you, there is no other way. If you walk by Christ, if you, if you try to get around Christ, you will walk straight into a wall of God's righteous anger in a future day. 
So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, would you put your trust in Him today as your Savior and the Lord of your life? And if you do know Christ, I think the final promise and the point is this. Christ said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And I want you to love me back. So if you're a believer, you need to be certain, I need to be certain, that we maintain our first love. Because all the right beliefs and all the outward service cannot make up for a cold heart. Yes, there is work to be done. Yes, there is a fight to be fought. Yes, there is a faith to be championed. But there is also a person to be loved with the love that we had for him at first. During a period of illness in in 1856, Elizabeth Prentice jotted down a poem that she later showed to her husband who published this in a pamphlet. And when Howard Doan saw these words, he put them to music that became a beloved gospel song. The first verse of that song expressed Elizabeth's earnest desire. Here's the words. More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. And then the second verse really, I think, describes the prayer that the church in Ephesus needed to pray. Once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest. Now thee alone I seek, give what is best. This all my prayer shall be, more love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. This is what we need to hear today. More love, O Christ, to Thee. More love to Thee. Let's pray. Father, thank You for our time this morning in Your Word. Thank You, God, that that we are a church that has known Your blessing. And Lord, we would never want to leave our first love. We don't ever want to say to You, I don't love you like I did, but nothing will change. And then carry out just mechanical functions and empty rituals and vain worship. So Lord, by your grace, make us faithful to love our Savior and to love one another. For Christ's sake, amen.